0: Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. If you're using the Blue Pew Bibles, it's on page 940. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Please be seated.
1: Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask for your spirit now to take your word and to teach us with it, to impress your word upon our hearts, upon our consciences, that we might know your truth, that we might feel the weight of it. That we might submit to its authority. May you be glorified. May your church be built up. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as most of you know, the steady diet in our pulpit at this church is to simply walk through books of the Bible. But every so often, we do set aside a short series to look at what the Bible teaches on a particular topic. And in this case, we have developed a sermon series that helps, um, the, the, the aim is to help you to develop a theology of the conscience. And perhaps you've never heard a sermon on the conscience, much less an entire series. Maybe you've never really given it much thought. I know we're all familiar with the word conscience, we know what it means, we know we all have one, but maybe we haven't thought about its importance and its relevance to the Christian life, and especially to our Christian life together. I would contend that some of you are living under a needless weight of guilt because your conscience is stricter than God's, because of various factors in your upbringing Your conscience is always pricking you. It's constantly condemning you over issues where the Bible is actually silent. You're missing out, missing out on the joy of living with a clean conscience before God. But there are others who have clean consciences, but only because they're ignoring them, they're suppressing their consciences, which leads to searing their consciences, which results in having a calloused conscience. And that, my friends, is a very scary place to be, to live with a damaged conscience completely unaware of the danger you're in. And then there is the way that matters of conscience affect our life together. We come from different upbringings, We come from different cultures, and too often, well-intentioned Christians are judging and condemning other Christians who hold different convictions on matters of conscience. If we want to maintain our Christian unity, then we need to develop a biblical, a rich, robust theology of the conscience. So this is why we're doing this series. It's going to be five weeks long. We're going to be looking at various aspects of the conscience, at the danger of a seared conscience, the blessing of a good conscience, the clashing of consciences, and the freedom of the conscience. Each message is going to unpack a particular scripture passage. And for this morning, our passage is Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. And we're going to focus on the testimony of the conscience. Now, if you noticed, we are calling this series, My Conscience Bears Me Witness, which comes from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. There in 9, verse 1, he was expressing his great sorrow for his own kinsmen, his fellow Jews, who were so opposed to the gospel. He was stressing how he was telling the truth when he said how much it pangs him to see their resistance, he says in verse one, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So there's this idea here that the conscience is part of you, yet it's independent of you. It's actually able to testify for you or against you. And your conscience can be working with the Holy Spirit or counter to the Spirit. So, your conscience is meant to bear witness in your soul, testifying either for you or against you. So, let's turn our attention to this morning's passage to Romans chapter 2, because this is where Paul addresses this idea of the conscience being God's witness in your soul. Now, my goal here in this first message is to simply introduce this concept of the conscience and to try to describe it biblically. And so to do that, I've, I've provided six observations to consider. If you want to follow along, look in your, uh, your bulletin. You'll see an outline with all six listed in front of you. So let's go through them. The first observation is to think of the conscience as a voice in your head. It's a voice, really, in everyone's head. One common depiction of the conscience would be what is known as the shoulder angel. Um, Our brother Matthew Koo has done another amazing job of drawing a beautiful image of that picture right there on the cover of your bulletin. That's that shoulder angel, right? It's, you know, we, we typically imagine a, a little devil standing on our shoulder, whispering sweet temptations in our ear to sin, while our conscience, that angel on the other shoulder, whispers into our other ear, reminding us of what's right and wrong. That's the picture we often have of the conscience, and that's really not that far off. The conscience is like a voice in your head. It's part of you, and yet it's independent of you. It's not the same as your everyday thoughts going on in your head. Your conscience is something that speaks to you. It accuses you or excuses you. That's how the Apostle Paul puts it. Let me just set the stage for us here in the book of Romans. Uh, If you're not familiar, Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church he has yet to visit. Uh, But he knows that there are tensions going on in this church, especially between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And this, this tension is threatening to divide the church. Now, since he's never met these people, he's compelled to explain in detail the gospel that he goes around preaching. And so he writes it out for us in the first uh, eight chapters uh, of of Romans. Now his main point is found in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. If you want to just turn there and, and see, this is his main idea, his main point of the whole book. And he says that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And why is he not ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he goes on, and he unpacks all of that, and he goes on to the end of chapter 1, demonstrating how everyone, Jew and Gentile, needs this salvation because everyone has rejected God, and everyone is without excuse. So that means even if you're a Gentile, someone who is not a Jew, someone who, who in, in, in their day, that, that would have meant you did not know the Word of God, that you do not have access to the law of God. Even if you're a Gentile, you have no excuse. Why? For what what can be known about God, Paul says, has been made plain to you. He's made His invisible attributes clearly perceivable through what He has made through His creation. That's his argument there in verses 19 to 20. So that means even if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, even if you didn't grow up with Christians all around you, even if no one ever taught you the Bible, no one ever told you about Jesus, Paul is saying you already do know about God. And that, that knowledge that you're probably suppressing, that knowledge is enough to condemn you. That's how, God, uh, that's how Paul indicts all Gentiles under the righteous judgment of God. But That's chapter 1. He's focusing on the Gentiles and how they're all under God's judgment. But it's not like he's giving the Jews a pass. He's not easing up on his fellow kinsmen. Because in chapter 2... Paul shifts focus to those who do have the law, and he proves that they too are lawbreakers, and how just knowing the law is going to do you no good if you're not actually doing the law. That's what he means in our chapter, chapter 2, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. In other words, mere possession and knowledge of the law of Moses is of no advantage to you if you don't actually obey it. The argument that Paul is making actually starts in verse 11. So in verse 11, he says, for God shows no partiality, meaning God is going to judge everyone by the same standard. Paul goes on to explain in verse 12 that those who are without the written law— Gentiles who have never heard or read the Scriptures, they will still perish even if they're not judged by the written law. Now, his reasoning for the legitimacy of their judgment, even though they've never heard the law or read the law, is found for us in verses 14 to 16. They may not possess or know the written law, but Paul says that Gentiles have the moral demands of the law written on their hearts and confirmed by their consciences. Now, we're going to get into that in a moment, but the first point I'm trying to make here is that everyone has a conscience, both Jew and Gentile, and that covers everyone, both the religious and the irreligious, Both the pious and the pagan, everyone has a voice in their head because everyone is created in God's image and he has left behind in all of us a witness. The conscience is God's one remaining witness in the soul of every man, woman, and child and it speaks to us like a voice. Now, whether we listen to that voice is another thing. But that's the first observation about the conscience. It's a voice in everyone's head. Here's the second observation. It's a voice that confirms the rightness of God's Word. So even if you don't have access to a written witness like Scripture teaching you right from wrong, your conscience acts as an inner witness confirming the righteousness of God and His law that's written on your heart. Look at verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So Paul's pointing out the fact that Gentiles who don't have the law will at times by nature do what the law requires. That's why no matter what country you visit or what culture you step into, you're going to find certain moral standards that are universally observed. To kill your neighbor, to steal from your neighbor, to take your neighbor's spouse for yourself— All of these actions are frowned upon. They're typically condemned within this country or culture. So Paul is saying that that proves that God has written his morality on human hearts. And so even Gentiles possess the law in a real sense. Yes, it's not written on a scroll, but it is written on their hearts. But it's the law of God. It's the law of God that they possess. Now, remember his overall point in chapter 2. We said that it's, it's, he's trying to demonstrate how the Jews are not better off than the Gentiles. Merely having the law, possessing the law, is of no advantage. And so he says to his fellow kinsmen, um, basically what he's trying to say to them is, look, if you guys agree that the Gentiles have the law in the sense that the law is written on their hearts. And yet, if you also agree that they're still guilty for their sins, well, then by implication, it means that mere possession of the law is not going to save you. But if that's the case for the Gentiles, well, then we need to stop relying so much on the law, so much on the fact that, that we know the Scriptures, because hearing and knowing the law is clearly not enough if possession of the law written on hearts is not enough to save the Gentiles, the same principle would apply to Jews and their possession of the law written also on scrolls for them to read. That's the whole point that Paul is trying to make in this text. Now, for our purposes, we can draw an inference when it comes to the human conscience. The point that's relevant to our discussion is that Everyone has a heart, and imprinted on that heart are the moral demands of the law. And our conscience serves as an inner witness confirming the existence of that moral knowledge and warning us whenever something is wrong. The presence of a conscience demonstrates that the Gentile is aware of the moral demands of the law. He has a twofold witness. He has the demands of the law written on his heart, and he has the conscience testifying to what is right and wrong. It's kind of like how every car has an engine, right? I mean, that's, that's what makes it a car. That's what makes it go. Every car has an engine. Yet at the same time, every car has A check engine light. Now, when things are going fine, when everything is operating as it should, we don't even think about the engine. We don't even think about the fact that it's so important and vital. But when there is a problem, that's when the lights go off. That's when when the check engine light comes on and it begins to warn us. So the conscience is like a check engine light. It comes on when there's a problem in your heart, and it bears witness to your soul that something is wrong, that you're not operating according to the law that is written on your heart. And that's going to lead us to our third observation of the conscience. It's a voice that can either comfort or condemn you. It can excuse you or, or it can excuse you or accuse you. Look at verse 15 again. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Some people, unfortunately, confuse the conscience with uh, an individual's personal temperament because I think we all know some people who are particularly anxious they, they tend to obsess all the time over guilty thoughts. While there's other people who never seem bothered and, they, and they're, they're rarely affected by having guilty feelings. So we know those kinds of people. I mean, we, we may be those kinds of people. So we tend to chalk up the differences to just personality and temperament. But, you know, a more biblical category would be to see these differences as indicative of the health of a person's conscience. If your conscience is working properly, it will neither be overly sensitive nor simply calloused. It will work as it should to condemn you of your sins, even the ones that you are uh, committing in secret, the ones that you're currently getting away with. That's what Paul says in verse 16. I think we often imagine there being a courtroom scene in heaven And we typically picture the devil, you know, being, you know, know, dressed like like a slimy prosecutor, you know, coming in uh, to accuse us before the judge, before God. You know, I think there is biblical warrant for that kind of an image. But, you know, the fact is, the devil doesn't even need to show up in court. He can just stay home and let your conscience do the job. I mean, you think it's scary to have the devil accuse you of your sin? What about your conscience? That should scare you more. Because the devil, if you think about it, he's not omniscient. The, The devil is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. So he's not always around to observe your behavior. He can't read your thoughts. He doesn't know your intentions. And so there's a limit to his knowledge that he can accuse you with. But your conscience... Well, your conscience is with you all the time, and it knows your every thought, your every desire, your every intention. Maybe you didn't say that hurtful word, but your conscience knows what you meant. Maybe you didn't carry out that particular deed, but your conscience knows you wanted to. Nothing escapes its attention. One day, on that day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, your conscience will bear witness that you are guilty in your sins and God is righteous in his judgment. And that's what Paul means when he speaks of your conscience bearing witness to accuse you. But please, friends, we should not see the conscience as our enemy. The devil is our enemy. He's trying to destroy you. But, friends, your conscience is trying to help it's actually a gift to you. It's like, it's like having pain receptors working properly in your nervous system. I think sometimes we wish, man, wouldn't it be great if we could never feel pain? Because sometimes we go through situations and experiences where, man, pain hurts. It hurts so bad. But it's actually a gift to feel pain. Do you realize that those with abnormal nervous systems who are insensitive to pain, they live in constant danger of harming themselves. If you can't feel pain, then you don't know if you're picking up a a hot pan or if you've cut the back of your leg and you're bleeding out, you just don't know. The ability to feel that pain is actually a gift. In the same way, to have a sensitive conscience that works properly in accusing you when you do sin making you feel guilty when you are, is a gift from God. We shouldn't bemoan a sensitive conscience. We should listen to it. So friends, when your conscience rightly condemns you, well, there's only one thing for you to do. You confess your sins to God, and you be thankful that your conscience still works. Be thankful to God for giving you a heart of repentance that's able to turn from your sins and to trust in His Son for salvation. Because that's really our only hope, our only salvation, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Because He was condemned. In our place, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who place their trust and put all of their identity in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So, friend, if you're carrying around with you a guilty conscience, I know it's a heavy burden. I know what it feels like. It's probably keeping you up at night. It's probably eating you up from the inside. But thank God that your conscience still works properly. Now it's time to listen to it. Now it's time to go to Jesus in confession and to receive his forgiveness by faith. That leads now to our fourth observation. The conscience is a voice you should always listen to. I'm not exaggerating when I say always. You should always listen to your conscience. Now, it doesn't mean that your conscience is always right. That's going to go into our next point. But it's never wise to go against your conscience. In fact, I would say that it would be flat out wrong to do so. When Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, made his famous stand at the Diet of Worms in 1521... He was asked to recant all of his past writings where he defended the gospel, uh, when he defended justification by faith uh, alone. And he refused to recant. And he said, quote, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me amen. You see, Luther was simply reflecting Paul's teaching on the conscience that's taught here in Romans, especially uh, later in Romans chapter 14. We're going to look at that passage later in this series, but basically there, Paul is telling the Romans that what you eat or don't eat is really just a matter of conscience. God has deemed all foods to be clean, so you can eat whatever you want with a clean conscience, but then Paul says in Romans 14, verse 23 But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is if your conscience is warning you to not eat something on the assumption that it's a matter of sin and disobedience, then even if your conscience is mistaken, your conscience has it wrong, you still shouldn't do it. It would be sin to go against your conscience, not because the action is necessarily sinful. You could be wrong there, but because you're intending to sin if you intentionally ignore your conscience. So let's, let's imagine here. Let's imagine if one Christian uh, is raised to believe that wearing shorts I'm talking about men or women would be immodest that to wear shorts to show your bare legs would be displeasing to god his conscience says that's a sin and imagine if another christian is raised to believe that buying consumer products that are not fair trade is morally wrong and that it's harmful to other people her conscience says that's a sin I hope you see I'm trying to choose examples from two sides of a very you know, conservative or, or liberal spectrum, and examples that I think we can safely assume that no one here considers to be sinful. Now, we can do our best as we're trying to love and disciple these brothers and sisters. We can do our best to persuade these fellow believers that their consciences are just too strict, even stricter than God's. But if they can't wear shorts or buy coffee that's not fair trade without feeling the pangs of a guilty conscience, then they shouldn't do it. Call him a prude. Call her too progressive. We know it's not a matter of sin or disobedience if you wear shorts or you buy the coffee. But if their conscience says otherwise, then they need to listen. It would be a sin to go against your conscience conscience. Even if it's not a sin issue, in that moment, your intention would be to sin. And intentions are really what matter. So we should never encourage anyone to violate their conscience. That's how you end up eventually searing your conscience. If you get used to ignoring it or blatantly going against it, Now, you might loosen up on a few of these rather innocuous issues. You might be a little easier to be around, but now your conscience is going to be hardened and unable to warn you when one day you really are dealing with something dangerous and sinful. It's like losing all of the pain receptors in your hands, you'll have no idea if you're handling something hot or dangerous. It's like constantly ignoring that check engine light until one day you find yourself unexpectedly stuck, lost somewhere in life. Like Luther said, it's neither right nor safe to go against conscience. So let's honor that principle of always listening to your conscience. But that doesn't mean your conscience is absolute. That's not to say that it can't or shouldn't change, which leads to our fifth observation. The conscience is a voice that you can calibrate. And I like that word calibrate. I get it from a book that I recently read on the conscience. There's um, in this book the example of calibrating your car's speedometer. So if your car's speedometer is off and it's always reading 10 miles per hour too slow, then just imagine one day you might find yourself pulled over for going 10 miles over the speed limit. And you can try to explain to the officer that Well, my speedometer says I'm not speeding, and you can try to use that as a defense that that I'm just diligently listening to my speedometer, and he's going to just write you that ticket and say, well, that's your problem. Go calibrate your speedometer. Well, so in the same way, if you're in sin, but you try to tell God, I didn't know I I was just listening to my conscience. If you tell him, if you tell him, you know, God, it's neither right or safe to go against conscience, he'll tell you, you need to get your conscience calibrated. So how do you do that? How do you calibrate your conscience? Well, think about how you calibrate a speedometer or calibrate a scale, a bathroom scale. You measure it against the standard, and and you adjust it until it reflects that standard. Well, in our case, the case of your conscience, the standard, of course, is Scripture. Yes, it's true that Luther was all about respecting his conscience, but do you remember what he said? He said his conscience is captive to the Word of God. So conscience is not king. God is. That means we use God's Word to correct and to calibrate our consciences. You measure your conscience against the truth of Scripture, and you just keep adjusting it until it reflects that truth. So what that's going to mean is that we need to make a habit of familiarizing ourselves with God's truth. That means a habit of reading God's Word. A regular diet of Scripture reading will strengthen a weakened conscience, and it will arouse a numb conscience. John MacArthur says that your conscience is more like a skylight than a light bulb. He says the conscience lets light into your soul. It doesn't produce its own light. So like a skylight, a conscience works best when you expose it to pure light and when you make sure that it stays clean. If you keep it in the dark, if you let it get all cloudy and all muddled, then it's going to cease to function properly. That's why we have to be diligent to keep our consciences clean and to be constantly exposing it to the light of God's Word. That's how a conscience works properly. That's how you calibrate your conscience. Now, before we go on, let's just be clear here. No one's conscience here on earth is perfectly calibrated. No one has a conscience that perfectly matches God's will right now. Now, by His gift of His Holy Spirit and through careful, faithful calibration using His words, some believers may have a conscience that more resembles God's, and that really is one of the goals of our discipleship. But there are always going to be things that We consider wrong that God actually considers right, or things that we see as right that God actually sees as wrong. So, just like with anything else, calibrating your conscience is going to involve constantly evaluating and adding and subtracting from your conscience. There are going to be some issues that we might consider morally good or at least just morally neutral, but upon closer examination of the Scriptures, we realize that we need to add some moral demands to our consciences that weren't there before. Or, on the flip side, we might come away realizing that we need to subtract some moral demands that aren't there in Scripture, and they've been overburdening our consciences. So, for example, many younger believers are now growing up in a culture where having premarital sex and cohabitating before marriage is just commonly practiced is just considered normal that's what everyone does even as christians their consciences may no longer raise an alarm but that's why we need to calibrate our consciences These Christians are going to need to add this issue to the category of right and wrong as they're confronted with the scriptural commands concerning fornication and concerning the sanctity of sex within the covenant of marriage. But then older believers who grew up in a much more conservative day and age may need to calibrate their consciences by perhaps subtracting some moral demands that upon closer examination of Scripture turn out to really be issues of conscience and personal preference. Maybe it has to do with the use of you know, certain instruments in a church service or the certain genres of music that you can listen to. Maybe it has to do with, you know, um personal, you know, things like uh, you know, piercings or, or tattoos. You know, maybe perhaps your conscience once told you that these things were unbiblical, they were wrong, but now you've calibrated it with scripture and you've subtracted them from the category of right and wrong and their issues. Of conscience. Of course, you know, I'm only scratching the surface of examples here, and I purposely avoided the more controversial, debatable ones. Uh, We can talk about those in our small groups. This is hard work here, obviously, but it's so important. You have to learn to calibrate your conscience because it is going to be a constant task in your discipleship to Christ. If you expect to grow as a Christian, then you'll always be calibrating, trying to match your conscience closer and closer to God's will as revealed in his scriptures. That means we're all going to be in this process, all in different stages of calibration. And so what that means is that no two consciences are going to look exactly the same. We all have different consciences. That's such an important point to make and to accept, especially if we hope to maintain Christian unity among a body of believers who possess different consciences. If we all have different consciences, then that leads to our sixth and final observation. The conscience is a voice that only you are accountable to. Now, like we said, everyone's conscience is captive to the Word of God. No one's conscience is absolute. No one's conscience is king. But everyone's conscience is their own. That means your conscience is meant to speak to you and you alone. My conscience speaks to me and me alone. So it would be wrong for me to bind your conscience with mine. And it would be just as grievous for you to do the same to me. I would contend that if more churches had, one, a robust theology of the conscience, two, a high view of Scripture and a submissive attitude towards its authority, and three, the graciousness to respect each other's consciences, then much of the conflict that goes on within churches would be resolved. A lot of the conflict found between Christians is related to the matter of conscience. That's Paul's whole point in Romans chapter 14. He raises the same point later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to cover those two passages later on in this series. And there we're going to see how the true exercise of Christian love and Christian freedom will help us to live together in community, not just with clean consciences, but with full hearts and sincere love and patience towards each other. So there's so much, that more, so much more that we could be saying about the conscience. Really, friends, this is just uh, an introduction. Next week, we're going to be looking at the dangers of not tending to your conscience, how you can damage your conscience, and, how, uh, and, and, um, and, and what is bound to happen if you continually just ignore what it's saying to you. So that's for next Sunday. That's what we're going to look at. But let me just conclude by making a plug for the book that I said that I recently read that has been really helpful. It's called Conscience. The book is called Conscience. What it is, how to train it, and loving those who differ. Uh, We actually have a few copies in our bookstall, and so I'd encourage you to go get a copy, read it uh, this summer. Read it with a friend and, uh, and find out how much I've been borrowing from it as well. <laughs> so um, let me pray for us as we, as we conclude this morning. Father, thank you so much for how you have left us with a witness that whether we are believers or unbelievers, Jew, Gentile, pious, pagan, Lord, there is a witness that remains. It's called the conscience. I pray, Lord, that our consciences will, con- will continue to work properly, warning us when we need to be warned, driving us to Christ for salvation, driving us back to Christ every day for continual renewal. And I pray, Lord, that for those of us who have been ignoring our consciences, uh, just completely shutting it out, I pray that right now, Lord, you will help us to stop, to humble ourselves, and to listen. And for those of us whose consciences are overly active, overly sensitive, and burdening us in ways that are inappropriate to your scriptures, I pray, Lord, that you will now bring comfort to us, that we may now see that truly in Christ there is no more condemnation, that you do not condemn us for our sins if Christ is our Savior who has died for them. Help us to rest in that comforting truth this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.